0: There is a saying, night is the darkest before dawn. In another word, dawn of a day begins when night is the darkest. This is the first recognition that we need to remember as we celebrate the season of Advent. Advent cannot be properly appreciated without plumbing measuring the darkness of afflictions and adversities In the world, Uh, Episcopal priest and writer Fleming Rutledge, uh, by the way, she is a woman and one of the best preachers in the English-speaking world, once said this, the season of Advent is superficially understood as a time to get ready for Christmas, but in truth, it's the season for contemplating the judgment of God. It's a season for contemplating the judgment of God. Advent is a season that, when properly understood, does not flinch from the darkness that stalks us all in this world. Advent begins in the dark and moves toward the light. But the season should not move too quickly or too glibly, lest we fail to acknowledge the depth of a darkness. As our Lord Jesus tells us, Unless we see the light of God clearly, what we call light is actually darkness. How great is that darkness? Matthew 6:23. Actually, Jesus said, "If your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is a darkness, and how great is that darkness?" Uh, by the way, so true that a evil. You know, Satan always masquerades as an angel of a light and deceives us. You know, as we saw in the Ukraine war, you know, Putin called the invasion into peaceful, sovereign, innocent nation and uh, call it just a special military operation. You know, while the 97% of missiles and, and, you know, all the uh, uh, drones attack its on civilian targets, they call it, a you know, war, patriotic war. So, Advent, us take a fearless inventory of a darkness. Darkness without and darkness within. No one in the Bible experienced this darkness without, the external darkness and darkness within, internal darkness more than Jewish exiles in Babylon. According to Old Testament scholars and Jewish people, the lowest point in the Old Testament was now when Israelites were slaves in Egypt, because they were just a young, you know, kind of country and poor, just like a migrant, you know, poor migrant. But it was when they were prisoners of wars and the captives in Babylon. You know, that's when they really experienced national spiritual bankruptcy. Today, I want to share with you the goodness news of Advent for all the exiles in the world. By definition, exiles are displaced people who are looking for home. As a one Palestinian poet said, their exile is more than a geographical concept. You can be exiled in your homeland. You can be exiled in your own house. You can be exiled even in your own room. And it's so true. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, when we are banished from the Garden of Eden because of our sin and disobedience, human beings have been yearning for homecoming. So if you feel homesick, if you're still looking for something more than your current home or comfort, let me share God's comfort for you today from Isaiah chapter 40. So let's read Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 to 11 responsibly. Okay? So I'm going to read first. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid, for that she has been received from the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. A voice of a one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, "What shall I cry out? All people are like a grass, and all their faithfulness is like a flowers of the field. Grass withers, and flowers fall, because of a breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass will also fall, but the word of God endures forever. You who bring the good news to Zion, go up to go up on a high mountain." You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout and lift up, lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with the power and He rules with a mighty arm. See, His reward is within Him. His recompense accompanies Him. He tends His flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in His arms and carries them close to His heart. He gently leads those who have a young. Flowers fall, but the word of God endures forever. Since I'm preaching from middle of the book of Isaiah, let me briefly explain the background of uh, Isaiah chapter 40. Book of Isaiah divided into two main sections. First section is uh, chapter 1 to 39, and second section chapter 40 to 66. And the first section talks about God's warning and judgment for Israel's sin and disobedience. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, God condemns the Israelites in this way. What to those who call evil good, good evil, who put the darkness for light, light for darkness, who put the bitter for the sweet, and sweet for the bitter? Sounds like our days. You know, people call evil good, good evil, you know, it's like our time. So Israelites at the time they practiced a ritualistic religion without a real repentance, and they ignored God's call for social justice and peacemaking, especially for the poor and needy. You know they also believed the temple of God will temple of God in Jerusalem would make Israel invincible. It's like uh, they totally use that as like ultimate weapon no one can touch us because god is living with us to their surprise god allowed his temple and the jerusalem be destroyed by babylonian in 586 before christ and that was a prophesied chapter 39 now starting from chapter 40 god is a speak i mean isaiah is speaking of God's forgiveness and restoration and by now, Israelites lived in Babylon for 70 years, little more than two generations. That's when chapter 40 is written. So today's passage is a beginning of God's good news to Jewish exiles in Babylon about their homecoming. In this passage, the prominent element is a speech. Eleven words relating to speaking appear, such as a say, Speak, proclaim, cry, shout, call, lift up voice. And three times speech of God is mentioned. Alongside a God's voice are the voices like those of angels as well as a voice of a prophet and voice of Jerusalem. So from heaven to earth, the good news of God's comfort must be spoken, announced, and proclaimed. So I want us to know that God of comfort is the one who ends our exiles by making our homecoming possible. And it is my prayer we all receive and rejoice in the comfort of God this Advent season. For that, we need to listen to three speeches in today's scripture and learn three truths about our God of a homecoming. The first speech came from heaven, or oh divine court. So look at the uh, verse one and two. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, proclaim to her, her heart service has been completed. Her sin has been paid, and she has that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The first word of Isaiah 40 was a comfort. Its repetition expresses God's strong desire to love us and tender heart toward us. Many biblical commentators were impressed by this dramatic effect of the opening word of the verse. Comfort, comfort my people. You know, without any transition or preparation, the repeated imperatives or commands here strike the hearer with a sudden poignancy. And it is no wonder that Handel, the famous musician Handel, began his famous Messiah, famous Messiah with this verse. By the way, do you guys know Handel's Messiah? Are you? right? Do you remember the first time you heard the uh, first song of Handel's Messiah? I never envy any you know, male singers for their great singing. But when I heard Handel's first song, Come for thee, come for thee, my... You know, I just want to like, I want to sing. I you know. I just want to, you know. So beautiful. The imperative uses a second person plural. Meaning, God is ordering his angels in heavenly court, or what the uh, scholar said, the uh, nerve center of the universe, to announce God's goodness of uh, forgiveness. To his people, and now the last phrase, Israel received from the Lord's hand double for all their sin. We need to understand clearly. This does not mean God punished the nation twice, what their sins required. You know, this expression "double" is actually reference to ancient Near Eastern custom. If a man owed a debt and he could not pay his creditor would write the amount of a debt on a paper and then nail it on the front door of the man's house so that everyone is passing by, would see it, there is a man who, not pay, who did not pay his debt. This is like a shaming, you know, poor or urging the you know, debtor to pay. But if the someone paid the debt for man, debt for him, then creditor would double the paper over, and nail it to the door as a testimony that debt had been fully paid. This beautiful picture here is an announcement to Israelite as a nation her debt was fully paid by her coming Messiah. And later Isaiah chapter 53, and also Jesus said in the Mark chapter 10, that son of man came not to be served, but to serve, and they gave his life ransom for all. It was a fully uh, fulfilled. One you know, clarification note here is this. you know, God told the angels to proclaim to her that her service has been completed, her sin has been paid. Jewish exile or any human sinners can never pay out our own debt to God. When she served a hard time, it's not like a criminal served, fully served the sentence and then earned his or her you know, rightful freedom. You know, when God sentenced the people of uh, Judah for 70 years of uh, Babylonian exile, he did not sentence them like a, a judge in the court. You know, while God is a judge, he's a different kind of judge because ultimately God is our Father. When Father punishes the children, it is not for punitive reasons. But father punishes a child for disciplinary reasons, for their own good. So don't take this, uh, you know, this is uh, something they earned. Nobody earns God's forgiveness. It's by God's grace and costly sacrifice, they received God's forgiveness. And the reason for 70 years is a right time for them to remember. Their, you know, God's original grace in, I mean, whatever, in Jerusalem and so forth. If it lasts more than seven years, they will probably lose their ethnic identity. So at the critical moment, God said, okay, I'm going to bring you back home. Now, God not only forgave them, in this passage, we also got restoring them. That's the second speech. So look at the verse 3 to 5. A voice of a one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall raised up, every mountain and hill may low, rough grounds shall become a level, rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The second speech of God comes with a new scenery, which is a wilderness and a desert. Here, some readers are puzzled because the usual route between Jerusalem and Babylon actually did not go through the desert or wilderness. Do we have a map? If you look at the map, when Jewish people returned from Babylon Babylon to Jerusalem and Judah, under uh, Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah a little bit later. Look at the picture. Where did they go? They went kind of up and then west, right? They basically followed the, the river basin, the, the Euphrates River and the Jordan River. They didn't go through. The, there is a desert in the middle of it, but they didn't, the shortcut would be go through the desert, but they didn't go through the desert. So. Why does this desert image signify here? The foremost biblical meaning of a desert, and especially king's highway in the desert, is Exodus. Isaiah trying to show God who will bring us home is a God of Exodus. You know, do you remember Exodus? God led his people from slavery in Egypt to the promised land? And uh, he led them with his glory. He brought them first to the Mount Sinai, and they saw glory of God, right? And every day they saw God's God's presence through the pillar of a cloud and pillar of, you know, fire and night. So Isaiah was telling Israelite that God who led our ancestors from slavery to freedom will lead another exodus for all of us. Hallelujah! As God did it in the past, He will do it again in our life. And this promise of God, you know, Exodus applies to all people today and forever. Amen. As a Hebrews chapter thirteen verse eight says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know, God didn't do miracle only in the past. God can do miracle today. Amen. God who did a miracle in somebody else in Moses' life, is the same God who can do miracle in my life. Amen? All right, I hear the sound amen. Good. You know, renowned German theologian of the late 20th century, Jürgen Moltmann, in his book, Theology of Hope, correctly pointed out the first biblical image of God's salvation was not individualistic atonement of a sin or some kind of cultic salvation, but it was a corporate, Political liberation from slavery to promised land. You know, he says salvation of God is not some kind of otherworldly, you know, salvation like going to heaven. It's not some kind of religious pie in the sky or, you know, kind of, uh, you know, escapism. The original picture of a first picture of a salvation in the Bible, in the book of Exodus, was a concrete, real life restoration. So let me read a quote of a He said, totally without hope, one cannot live. To live without hope is to cease to live. Hell is a hopelessness. It is no accident that above the entrance to Dante's hell, you know, Dante's Divine Comedy, the section on Inferno, in the, you know, there's a, you know, a, a inscription above the entrance to hell, leave behind all hope you who enter here. You know, I would take actually Dante's inscription of a help to our Advent instruction. That is, uh, let's take a serious inventory of all the personal hopes and comfort of our life and the world as we enter into the Advent season, and the let's evaluate. You know, Fleming Rutherland again said that Advent begins with a recognition that human progress is actually deception. It's so true. You know, new iPhone, whatever new gadget people say we should have, will it really comfort us? Will it really make our life better? Little bit convenient? That's about it. You know, right now, World Cup, by the way, World Cup means a global number one sporting event. I have to remind this American people. And uh, they ignorant American people, we don't, you don't, I mean, I say you. Okay. I don't say we. You don't know what's going on in the world because I know what's going on in, you know. So whoever wins the World Cup, rule the world. That's how Latinos think. And I'm, a, you know, in that sense, I'm a Latino, yeah. You win the soccer, you won, you're the world champion, not the baseball, not the basketball. It's uh, soccer. Soccer defines the world, okay? Because that's the cheapest, most popular sport that anybody can play. Anyway, last week, a lot of uh, upset. The greatest upset, Oh, I was going to call Reba, but she went to teach children. You know, I don't know, uh, Josh watch. Were you rooting for Brazil? Josh Stanley. Your wife is from Brazil. Anyway, they crashed. And I was kind of giggling inside. Because I'm from Argentina. I'm from Messi. Now Ronaldo, Portugal out, Brazil out. Do you know whole country of Brazil is now mourning? Their funeral. Oh, I was so happy. I was so happy. Because uh, World Cup is, uh, anyway. Soon it will happen to Argentina, I I kind of feel it. But because it's a false hope, you know, that excitement, that's okay. It's okay to be, you know, excited, the victory of your team, but that cannot be your comfort. That cannot be your hope. That cannot be your peace. So I'm happy that Brazil is mourning. And through that, I hope they're humble and they, they say, ah, Soccer is not our God. Jesus is our Savior. That's what I hope Brazilians come together. Now, you know, uh, a pastor once said this. It is not comfort food's job. It's not alcohol's job. It's not Amazon Prime's job. It's not Instagram's job or coffee's job to comfort you and deliver you from your weariness or your loneliness or your physical ailment or emotional pain. Jesus alone is a Savior. Amen? He alone can take us to promised land of hope and comfort. All other hopes other than Jesus are sinking sand and false hope. Now, some people ask, whose voice is a voice of one calling? Thanks to the New Testament, we know that. Because later, John the Baptist came, and he claimed that was who he was. Do you guys remember John chapter 1 when delegation from Jerusalem came to John the Baptist and tell us who you are? Are you the Messiah? And then John the Baptist said what? I'm the one, I'm the voice of a one calling in the desert. And my job is to make the way of the Lord straight. I think John the Baptist you know embracing you know embrace embracing of this verse as, as a life mission is applies to all of us anybody who knows who Jesus Christ is that is our life mission make the way of the lord straight so all those around us all those around us you know looking for the comfort and the homecoming they can they can they can find a way to true home you know uh, there is a, a British, uh, great British uh, uh, preacher in the 20th century named John Henry Jewett. And he said uh, something good about comfort. He said, God does not comfort us to make us comfortable, but to make us comforters. Amen? God comforted us so that we can be comforters to others. And... Uh, you know, this past Monday we had our last uh, pray monthly praise and prayer night, and it was the greatest uh, for me for the for whole year. We have our largest attendance, and much more than that, everybody open up their heart and share their heart with uh, with each other. You know, so usually I have to kind of uh, pull the kind of the teeth kind of anyone anyone and they have to wait for a few minutes that day I was sitting here people kept coming and I was saying oh we saw about time is over and I was looking out and people kept coming we ended up 30 minutes late. why Someone was sharing something very burner you know pray for my whatever my my heart, that is feel so empty or something. And that kind of of honest, vulnerable sharing actually encourages some newcomers. The newcomers also share something very private. And that's where I learned. You know, in order to comfort and encourage other people, you don't have to be a comfortable, successful position to comfort other people. When you have a yearning heart for Christ, when you have a face to seek for Christ, and that you tell honestly your struggle, that comfort other people. Amen. So during this, you know, during this Advent season, I all pray that we really comfort each other. We really comfort those, you know, BIPs and MIAs around us. Now let's see the third and the final scene of uh, speeches, which is uh, amazingly a high mountain. And this high mountain is a none other than Jerusalem and Judah. So metaphorically, they are back in the hometown or homecoming. So look at the verse 6 and 11. A boy says, cry out. And I say, what shall I cry? All people are like a grass. All their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. Their grass, the grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers and flowers fall, but the word of God endures forever. You who bring the news to Zion, go up to high mountain. You bring the good news to Jerusalem. Lift up your voice with a shout, and lift it up. Do not be afraid, says the town of the Judah. Here is your God. Now, here we notice that before we uh, before God takes exile to their beloved homeland, the prophet Isaiah, or here in Texas, I, played the role of devil's advocate. When angel of God calls a prophet to cry out, the prophet asked, "What shall I cry out?" You know. And then the prophet, you know, then asked, "What's so special about the promise and the deliverance of a homecoming?" And, and, and then he said, all people are like a grass and their faithfulness is like a flowers of a field. The grass withers and flowers fall because the breath of the Lord is blows and they surely people are the grass. He's talking about very negative, pessimistic on the, you know, kind of people, right? You know why? Because during that time, Israelites received a lot of false promises about their deliverance and their homecoming. You know, before Babylonians invaded them, many Jewish, uh, many, many Jewish prophets said that, oh, God will protect us. And then they lost their country. And then when they're in the country, oh, God will bring us back to, you know, back, back soon. No, it took them more than 70 years. They're still waiting. So people were tired and pessimistic. So here, Isaiah is a contrasting human temporality to God's eternity. Because the human power and dependability is a temporary, whereas God's power and dependability is eternal. Human promise is not much hopeful and comforting, but God's promise is different and dependable and truly delivers us to comfort. Now, let me illustrate this power and dependability of God's eternal Promise keeping through a new classic human drama called "Reborn Rich." Do we have that? "Reborn Rich." Yes. There is a buzz among K-drama fans all over the world. You know, last year "Squid Games" was a global hit. This year, this one, "Reborn Rich," is an international sensation. According to Vicky. If you don't know BK, that's okay. This is a top one miniseries over 50 countries with a dubbing of many languages, you know, including Hindi. Okay, and uh, by the way, I didn't watch any of this, so I confess. Okay, but uh, the storyline is so clever, so it makes a you know. So that's why, and by yeah, I don't have a patience to watch any drama. Even movies. Because every fifteen minutes my mind tells me, Man alive, Bible is much better than this. Why you waste this, you know. So anyway. But about going back to Reborn Rich Fan. I wanna say this. This is a revenge drama. So the basic storyline of drama is this a very dedicated, good, faithful employer of a filthy, rich Korean family was murdered while serving the family. And he was reborn as the youngest grandson of the owner of the Korean conglomerate with all the memory intact. All the memory intact. So, because he was reborn 20 years ago, but knew what, happened in the, what would happen in the next 20 years, he used that knowledge of a time gap for his business advantages. For instance, you know, he uses y 2 Y2K virus crisis and the 9-11 terrorist attack for his business practice, and he became a successful investor. And I think such a fantasy hits the core of every human wish. Have you ever fantasized that? You wish that you knew what would happen next tomorrow or next week. Have you ever wished that you knew the number of uh, mega, super mega laro that happens in you know, a week before? This is a still final week. Students, have you fantasized that somehow you know the final exam question week before the test wouldn't be great, right? I bet right now, all the sportscasts, they wish they knew every winner of every game. That will totally, you know, uh, set them apart. You know, the audience of this K-drama, fulfilling their fantasy desire, while watching that Song Joong-gi, you know, the cute-looking guy, exercises a future knowledge to his uh, crisis at the edge of their seat. And the while I you know admire the clever lie storyline, you know what? It dawns on me. That is, I'm better than Song Jungi. His character. Of course, not better looking than Song Joon-ki, but I'm saying I'm better than Song Jun-gi's character. I'm actually actually we are all much better than the main character when it comes to future knowledge. Because I know the end of everything. I know the end of everything through the risen Christ. Through Christ and his resurrection, I know what's the end of history. Those of you taking Cornerstone Bible study, you learned the resurrection is proleptic event. What is a proleptic? Do we have that? Prolepsis is the anticipating. It is a description of an event that taking place before you could have done treating of a future event as if it had already happened, or anticipating answering of an argument before one's opponent has a chance to advance it. Simply put, proleptic event is like a watching a preview of a coming movie. You already know what the movie is about, right? When you watch the preview. We have an ultimate preview of the end of everything through reason Christ. So if a Song Joon-Ki character can play so cleverly and winning, you know, overcoming every crisis with the 20 years of, uh, you know, uh, uh, whatever, uh, proleptic, you know, information. How about you and me? We are approaching life from the end of end of end. We know the end of everything. We know who's going to be winner. We know who's going to stand with God at the end. So I really pray that uh, I, I, I realize that I have a winning hand. I cannot lose my game of a life. I have a winning, I'm handed the winning hand by grace of God. So this drama should be played better in every Christian's life because we receive ultimate future reality in our presence. Now, verse 9, you know, the, uh, uh, the prophet, he repeats, You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, twice you repeat, bring the good news to Zion and Jerusalem. By the way, same thing, same name. And, the, you know, when Jewish people translated this Hebrew Bible into Greek Bible 200 years before Christ, the word good news, that is euangelos, or we say evangelion, from which we have an evangelism. It's a good news. And the good news is what? The Lord is here with us. Here is your God. That is the good news. God does not give something to comfort us. God gave of himself to comfort us. God became our permanent comfort with the human flesh. This is a final picture of God's comfort. And then rest of the verse, you know, 10 and 9 present God as a warrior as well as a shepherd. Together, they're presenting God's might and mercy for his people. So verse 10, sovereign Lord comes with the power. He rules with a mighty arm. His reward is with him. His recompense accompanies him. You know, the picture is the... uh, is a warrior who is returning to his hometown after winning a battle and leading his victory parade with all the war spoils and the honors. And here Isaiah said, we are the 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 triumphal warriors' reward and recompense and honors. He fought the battle for us. He won the battle for us. That's what Isaiah was saying. And then next verse about the shepherd. He tends, his." Flock like a shepherd, he gathers lambs in his arms, carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. You know, shepherds always comfort his sheep, especially when sheep is in trouble. And that's what our God does. You know, in a recent book, uh, Pastor Tim Keller asked a very timely question for us. He said: if a Jesus Christ did not abandon you, in his darkness, that means his, you know, ultimate darkness on the cross. Why would he abandon you now in your darkness? Let me ask you. Are you going through some darkness? Are you going through some, you know, emptiness? Some anxiety? Some adversity? Some pain? Christ is still with us. Amen. Is our shepherd and our warrior. You know, as I get older, I'm more amazed about my own relationship with God. Seriously, as I have less years to live than the years that I already lived, and as I see many of the people that I I know, I used to know, are now suffering, struggling in life because of their old age, physically, and some of them uh, relationally. So some of them, even pastors who, you know, who don't serve church anymore, and, uh, you know, no church would hire them, or some of them, their relationship with their spouse is totally dysfunctional, and not, you know, let alone the children too. So I kind of, when I look at all those uh, uh, so-called old people, old people, me, struggling around me, I wonder. Had I not believed in Jesus Christ, would I fare better? Can I handle life better? You know, when I was young, I was very cocky. That I thought, who, who needed Jesus? Are you kidding me? Only those uh, dreamy Christians, those wishwash people—they're the one who can. I don't need a Jesus. I have a Buddha, you know, and uh, you know, I have his wisdom. I have my own religion I have my own spirituality I was very confident but now I have a relationship with the creator of the universe and much more I know he loves me and every twist and turn of my life he was there I don't know how I would handle life without Jesus it's amazing And the great news that I once again I find in today's passage, Jesus came to, Jesus gave me the comfort by coming to our world, becoming one of us, and particularly making my heart his home. You know, the homecoming that Jesus is promising us, that he will be home for us he will be my home so if you receive Jesus into your heart guess what your, you will have a homecoming it is a Jesus who makes heaven my heart a uh, heaven I don't think Jesus takes us to heaven he brings a heaven to us that is a good news of the Jesus Christ don't think that you know we you believe Jesus you go to heaven no Minute that you know who Jesus Christ is and what He has done for you, heaven bursts in your heart. Amen. C.S. Lewis. Let me conclude with a C.S. Lewis quote. C.S. Lewis said this in *The Mere Christianity*. He said, "If I find in myself desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation." is that I was made for another world. You know, if there is an emptiness that no one and nothing in your life can fill, that is a sign for, signpost for you to seek Christ. Christ is our Emmanuel, God with us. He can fill your void, and he will really, really bring you home. Amen? Let's really pray that we all receive this comfort of Christ's homecoming this Advent season. Let's all pray that everyone around us find Christ's true home. Let's pray.